0: The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith and religion, as professed and practiced
1: by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of the Second Vatican Council and the so-called New Order of Mass. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church, here in Norwood Ohio hello father how are you
0: very fine Tom how are you doing
1: good father thanks for being here tonight well certainly thank you father we've got a lot of emails hopefully we can get through a few of these tonight Uh, this first one deals with Stephen Hawking he uh, died several months ago and uh, just recently um, his newest book came out it was uh, published by some members of his family so we've got a question concerning Stephen Hawking father this viewer says that he was clearly given a profound gift of reason from his creator. However, sadly, it appears he did not use his talents to the benefit of his soul. Uh, He goes on to say, my question is, as Catholics, how are we to deal with such staunch atheists? There have been a number in the past few years that have gained notable fame, such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and of course Stephen Hawking. Uh, so he says, Father, basically, could you provide some practical points on how to deal with such staunch atheists? Because so often uh, it seems that atheists are simply told that they need to have faith. And that does little to quench their thirst for the search and the search of truth. So what are some practical points on dealing with staunch atheists, Father?
0: Well, when you're dealing with a s- s- staunch atheist, okay, as opposed to an unstaunch <laughs> atheist, I guess... I am a militant atheist. Um, you have to realize you're dealing with somebody who has a very narrowed view of things. Um, no one no one can... They say there are no atheists in fossils. And uh, what they mean by that is when somebody's in danger, then finds within himself uh, some higher purpose and some hopefully God who can save him because of the dangers he's in the danger reason well i don't know if that's true that there are no atheists in foxholes um, <clears throat> but i would say this there when when you do find an atheist you find somebody with a very narrow narrowed view of reality and uh, he's simply limiting his his view of reality to a very narrow set, set of circumstances materialism and what can be measured okay and no, no atheist, so called, can really <clears throat> be an honest atheist in the sense that no matter how often or how loudly he may proclaim that he doesn't believe in God, <clears throat> he manifests uh, a belief in God in many, many ways. I mean, we are created, and as creatures, we necessarily have a God. Uh, we make a God if we don't know a real God. If, <clears throat> if we do not know the true God, we will We will create a god, and for for Stephen Hawking, I mean, his science science was his god. He just chose to make science his god as an explanation for whatever could be explained, and um, and and so that's what he devoted his life to. That was the purpose of his life, basically. Um, But but you notice when you get to talking with an atheist. the atheist is completely inconsistent. Um, for example, uh, Michael uh, Stephen Hawking's just uh, finished uh, a book, uh, his final book, called "Brief Answers to Big Questions," right? And it was published on October 16th uh, by Bantam Books. He poses a series of what they call ten intergalactic essays. addressing life's oldest and most religiously fraught question of all, is there a God? Okay, I think this is the tenth question that is addressed to him. And uh, the answer, they say, was compiled from decades of interviews and essays and speeches with the help of his family. And uh, this is what he allegedly says in answer to the question, is there a God or what he thinks of religion, or what he thinks of faith. He's saying, I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing. Now, created, okay, (laughs) involves
1: a creator, creator, right?
0: So even the terminology kind of betrays. Created out of nothing. (laughs) It's nonsense. It's meaningless. If he says there is no creator, how can he even use the terminology? And so you have the case, here's a man who is very, very clever, he's intelligent in one way, but remember that some of the most uh, destructive people in history have been very intelligent, but they just were not quite as intelligent as they thought they were, because they overlooked some very serious and important things, right? in formulating their code of morals, or their, their code of behavior, and so on. I mean, Stalin was a very bright man, so was Mao Zedong. They, they had to be very bright to get where they were. Hitler was a very bright man, in terms of just raw intellect, I guess you might say, right? But they, they made the most foolish mistakes, fundamental and foolish errors, right? And so it can be that someone who's very bright can really make some really foolish mistakes uh, and be blind to things that that are just real. Notice he continues. Now, Stephen Hawking died in March, okay? So this is all happening rather quickly that they're getting this book out. He allegedly says in the book, If you accept, as I do, that the laws of nature are fixed then it doesn't take long to ask, what role is there for God? And again, I mean, from a a standpoint of of intelligence, intellect, that is absurd. That is just absolutely absurd. The laws of nature are fixed. Once Once you accept that, what room is there for God? Well, how can there not be a God? You've just stated the premise for there having to be, if there are laws of nature and they are fixed, who are they fixed by? You know? This is what the human intelligence necessarily asks, and the answer cannot be, well, nobody. They just came out of nothing. They were created out of nothing. In other words, even in asking the question, even in posing the questions that he uses to get to the answer. He is demanding that there be a God. Uh, he even he even ends this uh, deal, dealing with God. Is he is talking about how we should just enjoy the, uh, 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 beholding the great design of the universe? Do you understand that point? That's yes, fine. Well. I mean, even answering the question, trying to make a case that there is no God, mm-hmm. he's making the strongest case there is. And he doesn't even realize it. It doesn't even occur to him, evidently, that what he's saying is absolute nonsense. <laughs> so, this is what you get when you deal with an atheist, And unfortunately. The atheist has to acknowledge the reality that he can't deny. <clears throat> but for him, the reality that he can't deny points to the fact that there is no designer, even though he says, look at the wonderful design. The universe is created, even though there's no creator. The universe has fixed laws, even though there's no lawgiver. And when you ask him how this can be, he just says, well, it just happened this way. Which is really a denial of his own human nature. Which is what reason is all about. I mean, reason is about finding the causes, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding things and their causes. And so, when you find an atheist, what you find is somebody who can follow the trail of causes only so far.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And beyond that point, he is incapable or unwilling to go to the necessary conclusions of where the causes ultimately of these things, right? He acknowledges the reality of these things, and then not only says, "Well, we can't go; we can't really answer the question that is beyond that." He doesn't say that. He presumes to answer the question by saying there is no answer. Right. And you know, this is uh, this is really truly pathetic. I feel badly. I feel very sorry for this man. By the way, remember Carl Sagan? Mm-hmm. He was an astronomer, right? And he's also famous for while well, producing Cosmos, right? He was the, the main uh, talent on Cosmos. And he's a, a well-known atheist, too, right? So, <clears throat> here we have a man who dies of cancer. He's receiving prayers from people all, all over the world, he says. He actually thanks them. He's touched by the fact that he has all these people praying for him. And he doesn't want to insult them. He doesn't believe. He's not going to believe in God. Um... But, you know, they, they manifest, he says, something that he believes in and that is human compassion and so on, okay? So, uh, so he dies, okay? So Carl Sagan dies. And his fellow science scientists are eulogizing him. And one of the physicists is, is waxing about Carl now looking down upon us right. and how proud he must be you know, at the advancements of science. Now, wait a minute. Uh, Didn't Carl just say he doesn't even believe? He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in a soul. So, what's he doing looking down upon us from the heights of the Empyrean heavens, I guess, and smiling with glee at the progress of science?
1: Hey, atheists can be saved, though, right?
0: Well, according to Francis, he can, but if someone doesn't even believe in his own soul, let alone in God, and doesn't believe in survival after death, I would say if Francis is anywhere, he's not exactly smiling, I'd say he's probably very much surprised and dismayed that he made a very serious mistake about something very, very important, which he should have known, you know, which he should have been able to figure out. <clears throat> so this is the kind of mentality we're dealing with here. and. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to um, be mean <laughs> uh, in any way, <clears throat> but sometimes you get the very brightest people who make the stupidest mistakes.
1: Right.
0: And uh, it's sad, and it's very dangerous, because people like that have power and influence, and they can accomplish a lot in, in certain areas, but when they... when they um, you just mess up, as it were, the most fundamental questions um it not only leads people astray, but um it 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 just it just it dishonors them i would say i mean it just it just uh, um it is not worthy of the intellect that God gave them
1: right.
0: and so you don't know if it's if it's willful to what extent it's willful. But uh, the fact is, the brighter, the brighter they were, are, or were, in the scientific field, uh, the more you would expect them to be able not to be limited by it. So this this person writes, well, how do we approach you with these people? Well, you know, when you the problem is, you have, let's say, scientist who is, you know, empirical scientist. He says everything must be measured. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, mathematics must be applied to everything, and we must quanti- quantify everything. If you have somebody who lived his life that way, he couldn't survive. No one could survive quantifying everything. Why? Because we live in a world, or I would maybe even it'd be better to say the world lives in us, of things that are simply not quantifiable. This is we, we live for things that are not quantifiable. We think in terms of justice and injustice. <clears throat> and to us, this is something very real.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Very real. And I'm sure that uh, Stephen Hawking would agree that justice is real. <clears throat> it's in his mind. I mean, you might say it's not out there in terms of uh, some quantifiable... Uh, substance, it can't be measured, there's no pound of justice, there's no yard of justice, there's no quart of justice, but it is real to us, such that we will orient our lives around justice, we will give our lives for the cause of what we consider to be justice, you know? there's a matter of honor, personal honor, that we take very seriously, it is real, it is absolutely real for us. It's not material. There's nothing material about honor, right? But it is real, more real than the sun in the sky for us. People will live or die for honor, right? Honesty and, and, and bravery, courage, fortitude, temperance, all of these things are so real to us, right? Um, and, uh, and, and they are. They are real. They are real, but they are real in God, right? And God has instilled them in us, in our souls, in conscience. And uh, they, they make up the very, very warp and woof of our human lives. They are the very purpose of our lives. Everything we think and do, everything that motivates us, ultimately must be referred to these realities. And you can't measure them. And... Uh, they, they, they go beyond science. They're realities that are beyond human science in terms of merely empirical science. And so a scientist who, uh, who denies these things, is, he actually denies his own humanity. He, he's, he's not even an animal. He's, he's something lower than that, it seems. He's just done that to himself. He's dehumanized himself. In denying the reality of these things. And um, you know, that's one one way to approach this whole question of, of atheism and militant atheism, is dealing with that. And I just have them acknowledge that these things are actually real. And they're not just psychological constructs that have nothing to do with reality. Quite the contrary. Um it is what it is in human nature is you know, it is everywhere in human nature, throughout human nature. The, the contest between good and evil. All of our literature, I mean, everything is about this. Um, so, uh, as I say, that's one way to approach it. There are several others, of course, clearly, but I don't know if we can get into all of them.
1: Sure. You know, Father, I think another example of that, what you're talking about, say, I just mentioned Carl Sagan, has, uh, he was talking about his belief in human compassion. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, another example right there. What, how, how do you measure, how do you quantify?
0: compassion. Yeah, well, Charlie, I mean, mean, it's compassion that come from the stars, <laughs> you know, like the hydrogen and the, yeah. and the, and the helium. Uh, um, sure, I mean, how do you deal with that compassion? Right.
1: You know, Father, I think you made an important point earlier when you were uh, talking about this idea of, um, of laws necessarily implying a lawgiver, a mm-hmm. design necessarily requiring a, a designer and all mm-hmm. that, and I think that's um, that's an important tactic that, that one can use to show that uh, you know this is the most reasonable, logical thing you can do is say, okay, there's this design, there's this created universe, it mm-hmm. necessarily implies it, it requires, it demands a creator, a lawgiver, a designer, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And to acknowledge that is simply reasonable, logical, perfectly in line with human reason. But to take the atheist route and say, well, there's all this design, there's this creation, but there's no designer, there's no creator, that requires a greater leap of faith than the logical, reasonable path that, uh, that, that we believe.
0: With one difference, though. What's that? That there's nothing irrational, there's nothing anti-rational in our act of faith, mm-hmm. that there's a God. Mm-hmm. For them... Mm-hmm. To say there is objectively design in the universe which we can appreciate and recognize and discover, Mm -hmm. for them to say there is law, there is fixed law in the universe which we can discover, recognize and appreciate, and then for them to deny the fact that there is a designer and a lawgiver, that is an act of faith that is anti-rational. That's That's very different from any act of faith that we make. And so they have to actually cripple, use uh, use, the expression, they have to impair, even deny their own human reason to stop there and to deny the
1: existence of God. It's very unscientific, too, if you observe order and, and all that and then just kind of dismiss it and say, oh, that's, that's how it is. Well, what, what do they imply? I mean, when they, when they
0: use empirical sciences, what are they using to reason empirical science? They're looking for causes.
1: Mm-hmm. Cause and Th- Whether they're
0: willing to acknowledge that or not, they are. They're following the trail of causes and effects. As you say, if they, if they cannot take it back to the ultimate cause, uh, then they definitely are, absolutely un- unscientific. They're denying science. Right. Now, they would deny that. they say, well, well, you're getting into metaphysics, then. That's not physics, that's metaphysics. We deny metaphysics. You say, well then, just admit the fact that you are limiting reality to these certain set of rules that you've uh, just gratuitously made for yourself. And if you want to say, within those rules there's no room for God in your way of thinking, fine. But just acknowledge the fact that, outside of that box you put yourself in, there definitely, not only could be, but there definitely is a God, right? And if you want to write a set of rules out so that you come to the conclusion there is no God, then you're starting with the conclusion and reasoning backwards, and setting rules that will rule out God. I'm sorry, but you're responsible for that, and I fear for your soul. I mean, there, there are many other arguments to use. There, there are even some who argue from human, uh, not only man's idea of, uh, the human idea of justice and mercy and compassion and, and so on, but there are also those who argue from the unique evil of man and how he doesn't just become an animal when he becomes evil. He, he becomes a demon. And uh, even there, his spiritual side is shown. Uh, not only in, in in virtue, but in vice, too. So, arguing from human psychology, as it were, uh, one can certainly come to the understanding of a soul, and the understanding of a creator of the soul. Um, I mean, one St. Thomas Aquinas gave us his, his vie in which he talks about the realities of the world around us, which the existentialists deny, which the The so-called, um, the, um, uh, phenomenologists deny, okay, they say it's something about phenomena we're aware of, we can't really know anything beyond the appearances of things, we can't draw any conclusions about where the world came from, okay, but St. Thomas and all the scholastics started with the idea that this is real, what's around us is real, we perceive what is real. And uh, there are certainly pathological states and things that can give wrong impressions in the mind and we draw wrong conclusions and not see clearly what is there. But nonetheless, the fact is that when things are healthy and working properly, we see reality and we can understand reality and we can know what's beyond reality, what is the cause of the reality we see. And we can come back to understand that there is a God. I was told by a young man that, you know, these arguments of St. Thomas Aquinas don't impress people these days. You talk to young people these days and they're not impressed by these arguments. And, uh, and I would say, well, of course not. They don't have the intellectual ability to think of them, they don't even understand them. They're incapable of understanding the arguments of St. Thomas. That's why they're not impressed by them.
1: That's right.
0: This is the way they're raised, you know. It, it, it's like, it's as though they're mentally impaired. All they can think of is digital reality. For them, reality is all digital. And it's it's virtual reality. That's what they live in. They live in virtual reality for the most part. So, I mean, once you raise children to be phenomenalists in their view, a point of view and existentialists, then you've deprived them of the use of reason. Each one creates his own... <clears throat> His, he becomes his own god of his own little world, of his own creation. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're dealing now. Uh, but again, it gets back to the fact that one may claim to be an atheist, but what he's actually saying, as an existentialist, which is what he's learning in college right now, is there is no god outside of myself, that I am the god of my own world. I create my own world around myself. All is true or false, insofar as I... Like the idea or not, all is good or evil insofar as it makes me feel good or not. And so you see, um, there is no God above me. There is no God outside of me. I am my own God. The result that uh, comes from existentialism, and uh, with a lot of young people today, whether they've felt it, through, thought it through or not, whether they've ever heard of existentialism or not, whether they could even spell existentialism or not. They are. They think like existentialists, and it's not healthy.
1: That's
0: right. It's insane.
1: Father, we've got a, another question about a uh, another contemporary figure here, on Jim Caviezel. So what do you think of him, Father? It, uh, his viewer says Jim Caviezel seems like a stand-up guy for Christ. However, he apparently admires John Paul II and Francis. So, Father, your thoughts on Jim Caviezel?
0: Uh, my impression? Not that I, I'm a great follower of Jim Caviezel, right? But I I know of him and I know he was the the figure of our <laughs> Lord in mm-hmm. uh the Passion of the Christ. Right. And I know that he's appeared on college campuses and given some very uh I'd say powerful motivational speeches to college uh, college students. Uh, as far as I can tell, he's motivated by a really good Things I, th- I I think he really does have a love for our Lord. This is my impression, okay? And I think he's very devoted to wanting to know and love and serve God, and uh, and uh, and you know help others to know and love and serve God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he has that that faith, but uh, he pr- he does think highly of uh, John Paul II and and Francis also, I guess. But I th- I think what you have here is a case of a man who more is an admirer of the mythology of John Paul II, the myth of John Paul II, and maybe the the myth of Francis, okay, the persona of Francis that is projected by the media and by, you know, just the popularity, uh, uh, I would say pop culture, okay, uh, that is, so many people I know from the Novus Ordo, conservatives, okay, pray the rosary, they're pro-life, <coughs> and they're, they just have this mythological, fawning um, devotion to John Paul II, but it's not really John Paul II, it's this, this image they have of him. Mm-hmm. I was down in the Vatican Grotto with some of our students uh, not long ago, and uh, as I, I approached a certain area, there was a throng of people kneeling in silence, and, it, and they were almost, they looked like they were in ecstasy. They were blocking the entire pathway, which was probably, well, maybe a good 20 feet wide. <clears throat> I thought, my goodness, what is this? I mean, i we all the pathways around otherwise were clear, and here's this one section that is... Completely blocked off by people who are just wrapped in wondrous contemplation, it was the it was the tomb of John Paul II, and they're just there, dreamy eyed, uh, you know, almost oblivious to everything going on. And I thought, this cannot be the reality of John Paul II. I mean, look at the things he did. He presided over a massive loss of faith, massive decline of the church in every aspect of her life. He presided all those years over uh, a, a dis- destruction. Even he acknowledged, you know, that Vatican II was not being realized. This was not really the springtime of the Church, where the Church is suffering greatly. And he presided over these, these youth gatherings, uh, which were basically, they said, Catholic woodstocks, immodest dress, immodest behavior, and I mean, it was just—he was a modernist, completely a modernist. Okay, but his personality—that's the thing. His personality was such, and also the the image portrayed by him in the media and so on. And she was just such a great guy, you know. And um, he's being portrayed, of course, as being very conservative. Well, compared to Francis, yeah, of course, right. Everyone would be. I mean, even uh, Karl Marx might be, you know, look like a capitalist, like surprising. But uh, the point—the point, the point is—I think it with Jim Caviezel and people like him, though they, they, they succumb to the, the myth, the great myth. Oh, yes. They had to create a mythology around <clears throat> John Paul and John the Twenty Third in order to to canonize them, as they've done. But I think if if uh, anyone were to really examine closely <clears throat> uh, the sexual abuse crisis, it was going on under... It didn't start with Francis. It didn't start with Benedict. It was going on all during John Paul II's reign. And in fact, it, it started even before Vatican II was finished. With the application of the principles of Vatican II the principles of renewal, the sexual abuse crisis started then. And these people who are leading this now... The big names now that are being unmasked right now, as having been involved in it and covering up for it, they were all ordained back then. They were ordained just before, during, or just after Vatican II. <clears throat> and so we see that this thing has been going on. It's been mushrooming all this time. Okay? Uh, the Boston Globe recently said, well, the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church uh, started 20 years ago. That's, that's baloney. That's absolute balderdash. It just became uh, manifest 20 years ago. Right. It had been going and and gaining ground and, uh, and and doing its evil work since Vatican II. It's traceable directly back to Vatican II. Um, and the implementation of the renewal, so-called, of Vatican II. So, um, again... You know, John Paul II seemed to have largely escaped the stigma, but as people continue to look into it, they're going to see that the roots of it are in him and in his in his tenure, and in Paul the Sixth and in his tenure, and none of them is is uh, innocent of, of all this stuff. They all share in a cover up of all this. Sure. So I'm afraid that uh, again, Jim Caviezel is. Uh, I think he's being sold. I know he's being sold a bill of goods by the modernists, who just don't want people to see their dirty work as being the Novus Ordo, and the Novus Ordo itself is a massive deception. Unfortunately, Jim Caviezel is still um, party to that and still a victim of that deception. I pray God that he'll come to see that it's. It is what it is, you know, the modernist, deception. deception.
1: Another, uh, another question here, Father, concerning uh, doc- two documentaries, Pope Francis, a Man of His Word, produced by the Vatican, and also Pope, the Most Powerful Man in History, produced by CNN and narrated by Liam Neeson. Both of these documentaries proclaim the power and prestige of Francis. So, Father, what do you think are the intended consequences for these celebrity endorsements of Vatican II and modernism?
0: The intended consequences? Well, they want to consolidate this. They want to enable Francis to finish the work and and finally create the Vatican II Church. That's Francis's mission mm-hmm. right now, and he's on that mission. And nothing else is going to going to step going to dissuade him, turn him aside, or stand in his way. I mean, even the sexual abuse crisis. That's an unfortunate example of collateral damage. That's not what's important. What's important is the mission that Francis is on. That has to be protected at all costs. And those who are in this with him, the idea of, of redesigning what, what we've called, and others have called, Frank Church, okay? Frankenchurch, Francis Church, Francis' creation. This is, his, this is the work that he is meant to complete, Vatican II and create the new church envisioned by Vatican II, which is the one-world church of the one-world religion, Uh, nothing is going to be allowed to stand in that way. So if they're going to sing the praises of Francis and glorify him and so on, it is only because they want to reinforce his power and his authority to carry through on that mission. The destruction of the Catholic Church... And the building of the Franken Church.
1: I believe just today there was an article that came out saying how Francis was talking about this very, very idea. He was calling for more change in the Catholic <clears throat> Church and saying that uh, you know history teaches us that it takes one hundred years to actually implement mm-hmm. uh, the the teachings of the Council. And he was saying we're halfway there yeah. with Vatican II, and so he was calling for help to change and transform the That's church right. and, and finish this. And who is
0: he talking to? His fellow Jesuits. Yeah, they're supposed to help him carry through on this yeah. mission.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: they understand the mission that he's on right now, right?
1: Yeah. It's scary. All right, well, Father, uh, one final email, if we could. This viewer says, Dear Father Jenkins, I am a traditional Catholic layperson who is homebound and cannot get to Mass, but I have a confessor who comes to my home on occasion to offer me confession and Holy Communion. Do I have any superior on Earth besides our Lord, considering I have no pastor or spiritual director?
0: Do I have any superior superior on earth Earth? Mm
1: -hmm. besides our Lord?
0: Okay. Well, uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of a canonical superior, I mean, within the structure of the church? I think so. I don't know. If you have no pastor that you recognize or can recognize, right, Mm -hmm. Um, who can command you, right, (laughs) I would say we are all actually under the, under the uh, uh, command of sacred tradition. I mean that's that's what traditional Catholics are. We follow Catholic tradition, right? And we see that the the authorities of the Novus Ordo within the Novus Ordo are not only uh, abandoning Catholic tradition, but they are totally against it. They're trying to destroy it, crush it, right? So, I could not tell this person who is, let's say, their canonical superior right now, they don't know right now. Um, so, I don't even know who they are or where they live, right? So <laughs> I, can, I cannot tell them. If they want to ask, well, what laws am I obliged by? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I can tell them they're bound by the traditional laws of the Catholic Church, they're bound by the moral law of God, right? And the the traditional ecclesiastical law of the church, but I can't tell them who if they if they do not have a a living pastor as that they recognize, then and they don't recognize the, the local bishop as being a Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, then and Francis either, then I can't tell them who who is their immediate sure. superior. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, Father, um, I think uh...
0: I'm not sure exactly what they're getting at, frankly. Okay. But uh, anyway, sure.
1: Father, I uh, I think we could end with that. I know you have a, a busy schedule. Um, unless you have any update for us on the uh, Francis follies, anything happening now of interest?
0: Well, there are some things uh, interesting happening, and uh, of course, I'd like to refer people to the um, the. Uh, now we have four four programs on modernism. Okay. okay. And what I'd like to do in the end is draw it all together in like a summary. Uh, but they're lengthy and possibly a little hard to follow. People have told me, actually, that the programs on modernism have made it understandable for them. Whereas before, reading the encyclical really was very puzzling to them. That now they, they're beginning to be able to understand you know, the point here. And, uh, of course, essentially what is necessary is to draw the connection between what St. Pius X says about modernism in Paschendi and what is happening right now before mm-hmm. our very eyes with Francis and what he's doing to the church, right? And so, as I say, when I summarize that at the end, I'd like to draw a point point-by-point know, comparison as to show that this is what Paschendi says and this is what Francis is doing. It's unmistakable. It's mm-hmm. exactly what he's doing. Sure,
1: I, I can attest to that. He's Father, completely modernist. I just uh, just recently finished watching the the third program, and I think it really drives home that point. You know, reading what Saint Pius X said, it's almost verbatim what Francis mm-hmm. says. It's almost like, like you said before. It's almost like uh, Francis just read the Encyclical Pascendi, mm-hmm. and he just embodied it. He personifies what mm-hmm. Saint Pius X talked about. So I think, yeah. in particular, I know the uh, the third program. Really drives that oh,
0: point yeah. home. So. Well, thanks for watching, Tom. No. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, but there
1: are other things. In fact, I,
0: I'd like to make a brief statement, you mm. know, maybe, maybe even, uh, you know, with a, very, very shortly. About um, some of the things that we read in uh, Cardinal Ulet. Some pronounce it Ulet. Nobody of the French. Uh, Cardinal Ulet's attack on. Uh, Archbishop Vigano, right. in his letter, his denunciation of Archbishop Vigano, and also uh, Cardinal Supich of Chicago, and the things that he said, and how they're actually telling us something very important. But I don't see anybody actually pointing it out exactly. So I think it would be important to point out exactly uh, what they're saying, and put it all together, so we can we can make a, a very definite point about it, so people can understand it. As I say, I, I see a lot of talk about it, but I don't see anybody actually putting it together. And I I think it's important that we do that. Okay. Maybe in a future single program, I can make sure. that statement.
1: We can do that. All right. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate your attempt to God
1: bless no, you. Problem. In
0: regards you. to everyone. I'll say that. You thank home. you.
1: No. <laughs> Thanks to all our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.